Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is Gar Locke. Gar is an Irish farmer who also helps ex-prisoners reintegrate into society, learn social skills and life skills, and improve their physical and mental health. Gar had this desire from being in prison himself, where he spent three and a half years of his life before coming out and realizing he needed to change himself and his life in order to reintegrate into society and find happiness. Gar grew up in an abusive household and an environment which was steeped in criminality already, so he was a product of his environment, but he has not let that environment define him now as a man. Like my episode with Sicarius McGrath, I want to show you, the listener, the power of redemption, change, and how men who have done possibly very bad things in their past can, with the right attitude, support, and determination, and personal responsibility for their actions, change their lives for the better, and change other people's lives for the better as a result. In this episode, we discuss Gar's upbringing, his relationship with his father, and why he reconnected with his father in later life in spite of the abuse he had inflicted upon him as a child. We talk about his experience of jail and why he saw it as a coming-of-age moment, personal development, taking responsibility for his mental health, and life and fatherhood. We then discuss his work with ex-prisoners, what these men need in order to reintegrate back into society, and the methods he employs to do that. We also talk about some counselling training he did and the power of taking control of your life and how to find the path to redemption. So this is how my conversation with Garlock went. Garlock, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. We are doing this on a late, late Saturday evening, but I'm not doing anything else with my life at the moment whilst I recover from surgery. So you're very welcome on the pod, mate. And I know this one will be a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. First off, how are you? I'm good. I'm busy, busy. Yeah, we're doing it late on the Saturday night because this is about the, the closest I'll get to two hours where I can talk to somebody. There's banging upstairs already. I have a busy life. And saying that I, I'm in my living room and uh, saying I want this room to myself for two hours and leave me alone and stay quiet. Phew, that's a tough ask. I <laughs> know, <laughs> mate. <laughs> And so it has to be timed well, you know. Well, I'll try and be as quick as I can. We've got loads to talk about. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yep, let's go. Let's start your pod by talking about your mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, I probably know the answer to this, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the guy we meet here? like this is going to sound so funny and right from the offset i don't even like the phrasing of it you know mental (laughs) health i just don't i just don't see it that way i just don't feel it that way you know where i might be different from normal people like i grew up a third of nine i had an older brother and an older sister and we grew up quite old-fashioned you'd called it my father made a deliberate attempt to toughen us all up and make sure we were ready for the world and as how he saw and that stuff works like he learned it from his father. His father learned it from his father. Tough worked, but there's sacrifices that you pay for it. But then now at 43, I can recognize that I'm following the same pattern, even though I thought I was rebelling, because the pattern in my family is to rebel against the father and what the father wants for you. So my father rebelled against his father. His father had his own business. It's semi-legal. Well, not legal at all, really. My father objected to some of what my grandfather did morally. He made changes in his own life, raised his kids his own way, set up his own very illegal business. And then I was raised to take over that. Out of the five boys, I was the one picked to... My older brother ran away when he was 15. He left and joined the army. But yeah, I was picked to join it. And part of the 
growing up and he's in process is going to prison. So I went to prison for hurting people on purpose. And in prison, I met a priest and two older guys that were never getting out of jail for the stuff they'd done. And uh, a few other people. And just through conversation, I started to change my mind about things, about my relationship to the rest of the world. When I came out of prison, then I was determined not to continue on with that life. I was going to choose my own life. And I did. I chose my own direction. I went out and built a farm to be a farmer. That's what I wanted to do. Well, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to live and work outside. And I wanted to do something natural. And I had read a book on growing vegetables. And I was like, Jesus Christ, even even I could do that. <laughs> it's like, you know, put the seed in the ground and don't let it dry out. It turns into food. It's not that fucking hard, you know. You add layers of complexity to it, depending on how good you want to get at it. But that's it. I thought, I can do that. Because I had very low self-confidence. I thought that I was only trained to be a goon. The family business was that my father had set up was basically goons for hire for stuff that you can't hire security guards for. You know, looking after or like debt dealers. collecting sort of thing? Yeah, a little bit of that. I never liked any of that. But it's debt collecting related to drug gangs. So, you know, it'll be like a, a dealer that owes the fence money. And then we'd be paid to sort it out. It's not like you'd be paid to go and get the money back. And then looking after people. So we used to go to nightclubs and look after the drug dealers. And, but then we weren't working for the drug dealers. We were working for the people the drug dealers were working for. So sometimes the job might be, if they get stolen, find out who stole it and then get it back. Or it might be, stop it, get it stolen. That's like PI stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all of this stuff is getting done. Somebody's getting paid to do it. This little googly corporate world that sits on top, all that stuff's being done in the background, you know? I mean, I chose not to do it. Somebody else is doing it because I'm not doing it. But I was raised to do that, and I rejected it, and I went my own way then when I came out of prison, and then I just started to develop from there, and I started to reach out to other men, and you know, met other men that were like me and kind of came from that background, and kind of said, "Do you want to come and do some farming with me?" And uh, yeah, yeah, it just kind of grew over time. Met a good woman, got five kids now. Wow! The challenge of raising children together. And now today I have one program that I work with prisoners coming out of prison in connection with the probation service. And I bring them onto the farm for two years work experience and I get them set up with anything they need. So if they need to finish high school or if they need driver's licenses or if they have an idea of what they want to go on to do, helping them understand the system, the institutions and the system and what, how it works and how you go about it who you register with, introduce them to the world of doing things civilly by by letters and permissions and licenses, encourage them to the idea that ultimately when people really, really don't behave and somebody won't go like trespass and then the police will be involved. But up until that, everything is done through conversation and letters. And if people don't agree, you get solicitors to work out who's right. There's a way to do things in that world like that you haven't been taught how to do, you know, like I wasn't taught how to do. Like, I, we were really good at what we did because as kids, we, my father was like, this is going to be my business. And he had five sons and they were going to take over. And with five brothers working together, like, you can get a lot done. Now, the youngest never really got involved. He was too young. But my older brother ran away. But the other two and me and then a couple of friends and some cousins, yeah, we got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and it was encouraged, you know. You know, we were raised to understand that the government and the police and polite society and corporate society is the general enemy. They're the ones that are really the one, the enemy. And then the rest of us are performing this weird gang war type fucking thing happening. But if the sirens come, then we're all friends again. And it's just a different world, you know. Mm. When, I, when I took myself out of it all and I started trying, I had to learn new behaviours just so that I can operate (laughs) it might sound strange but it's a bit like maybe it's easier to talk about in turn rather than myself because when i was doing it i was just making it up as i was going along trying to find the words and scenarios to help other guys with it has been where it is you'd be surprised at what sounds simple to some people and how 
unreal it is to others. It's like taking a guy into a clothes shop where the clothes are really expensive and he's like, there's no security here. Why are we paying? <laughs> do you know? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, he's not going to stop us. Just We'll just take him. And I'm like, but do you not want to come back here? Like, <laughs> or, And I have to rationalize it through how it's in his benefit to cooperate with this system and what polite society is. And then calm him down in the sense of, you know, people will speak to you because they don't expect a violent response, right? So I found that very difficult to get used to, you know. I went down to the post office to register for something, and there was a queue there, and I just walked up to the desk, and the lady said to go back to the back of the queue. And I'm like, fuck off. I'm not waiting. <laughs> you know? And she was like, no, no, you have to. And I'm like, no, I don't have to do it. And she was like, what? And I was like, you fucking do it. And then I feel myself getting wound up, you know because somebody won't do what I tell them. And then I realize that they're actually kind of behind plexiglass and they're prepared for this particular <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah, they saw you coming. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm calming myself down, you know. And I'm like, all right, and I go to the back of the queue and luckily I got a different person then to deal with when I had to deal with them. But the whole time I'm standing there going, what? Are they? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like the order and how it is ordered doesn't make any sense because there's no force. Who's going to stop me kind of a thing? Because maybe at one point there would have been a security guard and then everybody just got used to not doing anything in the post office. So then there was no point in having a security guard anymore. Everybody just kind of got used to it. <laughs> and I think that's how you end up with no security guard in the post office. You know, it's just enough people just go with the system that it works. But uh, I suppose my mental health journey has been trying to wrap my head around how to engage with polite society in, in a way that's beneficial and that kind of uh, fits with my understanding of people in the world and fits with philosophy on how to behave to get the most out of life. And, and I've always had to rephrase everything as, as kind of selfish altruism. I've never found kind of saying, do it for the good of other people. It's like, you know, that's not really what's happening. You know, you do good things for, for people. If you get the opportunity to jump in a swimming pool and pull a three-year-old out and everybody's like, yay, thank God you were here. Do you know? It's like, oh, hero. That's a feeling. That's why you do it. It's not necessarily to save the child. <laughs> and that might even sound a little bit psychopathic when it's a child because when you're presented with these situations, you just do it or you don't do it. You know, It's already predetermined whether or not you're going to be the one to jump in the river. You don't stand there and rationalize it. You're either jumping in or you're not, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But the mental health journey, to describe it, that is like, I never felt mentally unhealthy at no point in my journey. And maybe because this stuff wasn't popular 20 years ago, when I would have been in prison in order to think about it in terms of, was I having any mental health issues? It's like, it was fucking horrible. <laughs> I did 60 days in solitary. It was like, I don't know what you call that mentally. That was horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what they call that. Locked in a box for 23 hours at a time. Go for a walk in chains on your own. You spoke there about your dad making sacrifices in the upbringing that he made and chose for you and your brothers, mate. But you also was a tough upbringing. So what were the sacrifices that he made that ended up having an impact on you and obviously for the rest of your life going forward? And I would say that it actually made it very hard to really bond properly with my wife. And I had to make like, I really struggled to wrap my head around, like not owning her. <laughs> that's oh, going to sound like that's weird, a big one, right? <laughs> but you know, not that I felt like she was a piece of property or anything, right? But the like, say, just kind of relaxing and letting her do what she wanted and judging her by her behaviors, you know, and kind of not making her make promises for the future and kind of attachment and insecurity related stuff. Mm. She's, she was just like, nah, 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 shot all of it out the window. Because I was pursuing a type of relationship that I saw from my parents, which was all words, but like they flipping hated each other by the end, you know? But we're full of promises for tomorrow and stuff. And I suppose I was seeking kind of the security of promises for tomorrow. Because even when, say, like, as a child, my father would give us the belt if we were misbehaving, like, in some fashion or another. And it's like kind of 
how to describe it. There was the insecurity then of kind of when he would return to normal, which you kind of got used to as you got older. You'd know the temperance of he wouldn't he wouldn't stay angry like. And so then kind of expecting these behavior patterns out of my partner and then expecting her mothering to be similar to my mother's mothering. And it's kind of then you realize, okay, some of what my mother did was great. And some of what my father did was like highly effective. It wasn't pleasurable. I wouldn't say good. It wasn't having a great time, but it fucking worked. But you know, I still had a lot of love for my father and I still managed to reconnect with him after I went off and changed myself and came back. And he had a lot of stuff to say to me. He blamed me for a lot of stuff and I blamed him for a lot of stuff and we worked it out. And I was able to get a few fishing trips in with him and stuff. So then I was trying to have my relationship with my wife. And my wife then was a wild woman. She wouldn't even call me her girlfriend. And we had a kid already. You know, <laughs> you know she wouldn't do. She like, you don't fucking own me. How dare you name me in any way? <laughs> you know, and the trick to her was just never to close the stable door and she'd stay in the stable, you know. This was all a very aggressive reaction to her from, from demands that were coming from me for this wordy kind of security for the future. I promise I'll be with you together. And if I will promise you, why won't you promise me? And all of that shit. And get all past all of that. And she used to just turn around and say, what are you talking about? You don't know the future. How can you say it? You, you know? You're not Mystic Meg. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, but I'll, I'll love you no matter what. And she goes, well, I won't love you no matter what. If you cheat on me or if you have kids with someone else or any of that shit. Or actually, there's a giant fucking list of shit where I will kick you the fuck out, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so don't be talking to me about unconditional love. And then the two of us met in the middle. I, you know, I softened her up a little bit and she toughened me up a little bit when it came to what's reasonable to expect of each other. Kids can't force you to get on with it to a large degree. And that, that was a big part of mental health. I mean, the work that I do with other men and the prisoners and stuff like that is, is a completely different dimension. I can't behave like that in a family setting. It has to be a different part of me. It has to be a, almost schizophrenic kind of Jacqueline Hyde type stuff where the changes I had to make to the way that I was behaving when I was like 25, when my first kid was on the way to like now where I've got four teenagers at the same time and what that takes to be a good parent in yeah 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 it's baby steps baby steps you got to get better and better and better and be heavily committed and do the same with your marriage as you do you know and so that's the mental health journey i've had extreme bouts of anxiety but they've always been tied to events and things in my life and once you address the what's going on the anxiety goes away yeah, it's like that meme. How do you get over the anxiety of not getting stuff done? It's like, go and do it. <laughs> if somebody's really anxious and nihilistic, oh, what's the point? Oh, what can I do? It was like, that's because you're sitting down thinking, man. Do you know? Get up mm. and get doing something. Do you know what? And if you don't know what to do, go for a fucking run or something. Mm. That's not going to hurt you. It'll change your mental state, change your hormones, do a bit of exercise. I mean, I do maniac stuff, man. I go running up fucking steps and stuff because I like to be extreme. But you know, people don't have to do that. You can go for a walk in the woods and enjoy nature and sit there and listen to a stream or, or something like that. And you, know, you do that for a couple of hours or a whole or a whole day or whatever. And you know, just drink water. Don't drink caffeine. Just for a day, you don't even have to eat anything. Just bring a giant bottle of water. And just let your body rest. Let your mind rest and come back to it. A farm is definitely a business, mate. But when you came out of prison, why was specifically starting a farm something you wanted to do? Whereas, say, a lot of ex-prisoners might go into entrepreneurship of a more traditional kind. Uh, I had very low self-esteem about what I would be able to do in polite society. Okay. Why was that? Because I'd never existed in it, you know. Because, like, it's a funny thing in the sense that when it dawns on you, that everybody else has got this morality that you're violating. <laughs> Do you know? Life comes out Maybe you, you might be the one that's wrong about what's right and what's wrong in the moral sense of how we should treat each other. It's very humbling, but it's also kind of uprooting. It makes you really doubt, kind of, like, if what I was told in, in life, you know, I had to undo everything from being morally right and wrong in order to, to put it back together again. If I just completely demonize myself and, and thought of myself as I was evil and I'm trying to be good, 
in a religious sense, even though I had the philosophies I was taught presented to me in religious language. But if I thought of myself like that, I don't think it have ever got anywhere. I really had to kind of go, I don't have to have all the aggro and all the negative sides of that life. There's an, always an underlying anxiety that somebody's just going to come in the door and shoot you one day. And you may or may not, may not even know who it is or why. <laughs> the last thing you'll hear is your front door being kicked in. And it might be your partner and your kids too, or your parents or your brothers. Or, like getting away from that was quite a large impulse away rather than there being a draw to something. And so when I was in prison, I finished high school, did the last exams for high school. And along that, I had picked up a book on how to set up a market garden type thing where you're selling farmer's markets and stuff. And I wasn't brave enough to set up a market stand or anything. And I wasn't brave enough that I could grow multi-crops. I just had a fucking mad idea. I was going to find somebody that was going to let me use their field I was going to grow a whole field full of potatoes and I was then going to go door to door selling potatoes because everybody here eats potatoes. It should be fucking easy to sell sacks of potatoes for cheap. Not helping that and Irish stereotype there. <laughs> that stereotype's true. You know? uh, there has been fights outside the pub over who's over favourite potatoes and who grows them. <laughs> Jesus. Right? It's not a regular event, but it has happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of that Simp- Simpsons joke when they go to the O2 concert and Homer has to get in in disguise and he dresses up as a potato man and he goes, potato man. He's like, where the hell have you been? And they just let him in. <laughs> that was my grand plan, man. It was like, I was very naive of the world. There's a lot people take for granted if you kind of grow up in, you know, like a semi-detached house and you, and you go to a, a high school that's reasonably funded. Like, if your high school doesn't have bars on the window and security guards and that kind of thing, because it's not necessary because everybody's behaving in a civil fashion, because all of the kids that have gone there have been raised to behave in a civil fashion. Like, my kids go to a school like that, and I do sometimes stand there and reminisce, and I was like, when I was 16, I would have burned this place to the ground, you know? I would have stolen everything of value, and I would have burned it to the ground. If the teachers spoke to me the way that I hear them speaking to other kids, I could have killed somebody, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, it's just a different way of doing things. You know, it works much better. Do you uh, think so about I, yourself as a different person to where you were back then? No. Same person, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mentioned earlier on, I was raised to think tribally. I had a go at thinking of myself as a person of the world. And that we're all everybody's equal. I couldn't find evidence that other people were behaving this way. Some people were saying they were, but like if you look at the actions, they're not government institutions and stuff. But you know, so they've got big waves of immigrants coming at the moment, and amongst those immigrants, there'll be people like me, and those are the people that I'll bond with, and we'll see each other. We will see each other. I know this. I can stand in a crowd of people, and I can see my people, and they can see me. It doesn't take very long speaking to a group of people and then one in the group or a couple in the group or, or whatever, they like what I'm saying. I'm listening to what they're saying. And there you go. There's your people. Other people going, he's fucking nuts. Or whatever. And then they're different people. But then, like, that's, let's say, that's the outer core of the public and the strangers and the people I don't know. But then there is there's my family. There's the people that I'm actually related to. And then within that, then again, there is my wife and my children. And don't get me wrong, I'll kill every single last one of you (laughs) if it's for my wife and my children. So I don't abandon that idea of of tribalism that I was raised as I was raised with my brothers and my sisters. I mean, it was hyped up to give us, to really reinforce that, that there is us and there is them. And then you have this buffer zone of people that you kind of think like you do. But that if people don't think like you do, they don't have the same values as you do, and they will treat you like an enemy the second you step out of line. This is evidenced everywhere, you know, in the way that other people behave. People will behave like that. You go up and insult someone's mother and you'll find out you're not just talking about a woman. You know, I could see two men arguing or, you know, I could see a man turn around and tell his woman, fuck off. If somebody tells my wife, fuck off, they're losing something. Teased or, you know. 
I haven't changed in the way that I feel about that. I'm just never in these situations. It just doesn't mm. happen. You know? I've, I've moved to an area where everybody behaves and I behave too. But my behavior is also conditional on everyone else's behavior. <laughs> the second somebody else starts violating these polite rules, then they don't apply anymore. Like, I will not suffer somebody else not following these rules, and then I am held subject to them. <laughs> you spoke there about reconciling with your dad and the conversations that you had, the fishing trips that you had. How do you think you'd have grieved if you hadn't have done that? And how did you grieve when he did actually die? Uh, I did all my grieving when he was dying. He got cancer, so he was about 14 months as terminal without expecting him to get better. And it was a very special experience to witness the thought process of somebody who knows they're dying and have it go from a far away, you know, next year, you know, to getting closer and the cancer taking hold then and losing your ability all over the place, uh, resulting in being in a bed and looking like you're a mummy <laughs> before you die, because that's what happens to people that die of cancer. They end up looking like one of these mummies on. Did you catch that meme of the Indian person who was half starved, but they were still gone, and they're about 120 and they're in a bed? Oh, I might have seen you it, know? yeah. And it looks surreal. That's not far off what somebody looks like in their last week of cancer. Mm. And so to, to bear witness to all of that with somebody that you love, and it's like, if you love your father too much as a child, then you're going to end up gaining some kind of resentment as an adult, when you start recognizing that there's things in yourself, maybe that if your father belted you once or twice, when you were really out of line, then as an adult, you didn't let yourself go so far, that you had more self-control, that the fear of there being a limit where you can get a whack kind of enforces a form of self-control in you that then you can exercise as an adult. It makes stoicism easier. Like I was reading about stoicism and I was like, Fucking, of course. It's like, do people have to practice that? Are people so unrestrained emotionally that they actually have to practice not expressing an emotion as soon as they feel it? Turns out that an awful lot of people do. I don't know if you know any people who have recently arrived, not from the Ukraine, let's just take it to the little period before the Ukraine thing happened, but people that were from the east of Poland or poor areas around the Baltic that were gained access to the rest of Europe to work and they came over to work. How old are you? You're in your 20s. 29. 29. All right, maybe you've met a few and they're just blank in the face. They're experiencing all the same emotions as you are, but like they grew up in an environment where if you showed your emotions on your face and let other people know how you were feeling, that was going to go badly every time. And that you were very careful about who you expressed to what you felt. Polish people are very brusque as well and blunt, so that probably feeds Mm. into it a bit as well, I think. Oh, yeah, you know, you have all your insecurities stuffed in your face all day, every day, so you kind of get over yourself very fast, and you know what you're good at and what you're bad at, and you know if you're ugly, and you know if you're short. (laughs) They'll tell it to you, I know that for a fact. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you fucking, you know, right? That's Uh, what I love about them, to be fair. (laughs) Well, it gives you the opportunity to get it over fairly quick. (laughs) And it doesn't allow you that kind of American uh, daydream where you wander around thinking that everybody thinks you're brilliant. And, like, yeah, there needs to be more of that. I was driving the van today. I'll say this poetically, so as to try not to be insulting. But there was somebody who had tightly wrapped in a thin green sheet two giant bags of cauliflowers and were walking up the fucking street. And I was thinking to myself, whoever told you that that bag was for that bag of cauliflowers was lying to you. And there's a lot of daydreaming going on about how other people perceive us. When I walk into a room and just by the way that I walked when I was 25 and how I looked at people, people start fucking covering themselves, turning away. You cannot deny that, right? It's so in your face, I have to reckon with it. I can't ignore it. I have to come out of the Tesco's after knowing that just my presence has upset people that I don't know. So they're picking something up off me. And it's not just one person. It's old people, young people, everything. So there was something about me that other people could feel, right? 
and so I had to explore that. <laughs> I had to explore that and get over it and learn. It was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Actually, the way that I walk is considered a threat to people. Well, that's that, a pretty big thing to realize, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean when I say we were literally raised for it. And so then I just started mimicking other people. I started changing the way that I dressed. And oh, it was kind of, you know, when I would get to the checkout at Tesco, I would just say what I heard the person in front of me say. As simple as uh, that. Yeah. And then I start to realize all the benefits of, like the first time I went into the village post office, right, where I live, and the woman said hello to me, and I said hello, and I bought fags or something, or milk. And like I gave her the money, she gave me the change, and she says, I heard what you're doing, It's it sounds good. And Mary such and such said she liked your potatoes. And I'm like, great. And I said, that was lovely. And I was suspicious that she was after something. You know, the insecurity in my head kicked in mm. straight away that this wasn't real, you know. And then as I was leaving, this guy pulled up and he parked all over the place, you know, because they do that in Ireland. In the villages, they don't care about parking spaces. And he got out and he says, all right, boy, you know, kind of gave me some kind of a salute. And it was friendly and I didn't know him. But he was only doing this because I was coming out of the village post office. And then, like, now, on reflection, I understand that this was him wanting me to feel welcome and that the people, not everybody around there was thinking badly of me. And at that point, I was there about nine, ten months, and I'd actually pulled off a crop of potatoes, and I was about to play selling them. And word had got around that I was living in a tent growing potatoes, some mad fucker from the city who'd come out here trying to change his life. Some people liked it, some people didn't, some people thought I shouldn't be there, and you know, there was every kind of reaction you might expect. One guy gave me a chance, he said I could use the field, I used the field, I had my grand plan, I had my book on how to farm, and how to grow veg, I started, you know, in the second year, I got help, but like all of these things were like, that just felt amazing. And it was like, what was normal to these people going about the place might even be annoying to them because it's all fake. Everybody's just being polite. It's all just signals of we're all going about our business being friendly and nobody's going to misbehave. That's what all these are all just signals, right? Because when they're drinking and you hear them at a party or in the pub or at a football game when they're upset, you know that there is all of the breakdowns of relationships are happening and all the normal stuff is going on and these people are killing each other in private, but in public, they, <laughs> they all behave. And it was like, I kind of, I was marching in and out of that post office to buy my little bits and pieces once a week. And I was so happy that I had somewhere where somebody was like, at least appeared to be happy to see me. <laughs> and it was like thinking to myself, it was only ever in my own house and with my own family and with my people my tribe or where I would ever be welcome. And it was like going in anywhere else. It was like, I always felt like I was in enemy territory, no matter where I was. I could be in a petrol station and I would feel like I'm on someone else's territory. If I wasn't in the petrol station in my area, you know what I mean? Uh, A very different, uh, very different experience of the world. You've spoken already about the work that you do with ex-prisoners, mate. I want to go, a bit deeper now and talk about the specific examples that you've got who you can draw out so how did the desire start and then what have been some of the success stories you've had recently and what have been some of the challenges well i was always you know so this i was as i was expressing that i was always very insecure at the very beginning until i got going and as i stabilized and found a way to operate i started to integrate into my local community and started to meet people invite other people in and i had a sister come and move nearby and people liked her a lot and people really liked my wife i met my wife nearly straight away and i met her straight out of prison i brought her with me about a year after i moved out to the farmlands and people really liked her and she really facilitated my integration into into society and then I suppose it was about, I think it was about four years I was there. I was already running an actual market at that point. I got brave enough to try and talk to the public. 
<laughs> uh, turns out I wasn't a bad salesman, you know. Still not that bad, you know. Uh, Evidently, mate. And I really developed my language a lot with speaking to people, and I met a lot of people that spoke very well, and that really helped me develop my language and how I speak and soften out my accent so that I'm not carrying that city. I still can't really stop swearing. <laughs> It's just too useful. It's just another Irish stereotype. God. (laughs) Yes, I can't help it. I can't help it. But yeah, a guy, a local guy whose son was having a problem. He kind of got mixed up and he ended up in prison and he had hurt a few people. And uh, he was coming out and his father had come and said, look, you can't get a job anywhere. And he's not even trying. He's fucking, can he come and work with you? Because his father recognized that if there was too, if he went too long without work, he was fucked. And so he was kind of saying, like, would you talk to him kind of a thing? And would you give him a job? And then I was still actually on probation at the time. So I was still having to meet once a month with a probation officer. And so when I told the probation officer that I had taken on this fella, he was obviously obviously on probation as well. And then that just morphed into the probation officer saying, would I employ someone else that the first lad was actually doing all right? Since he started working on the farm, he seems to be doing okay. And would I take someone else? And then I ended up with eight people, so I needed help. I couldn't afford to pay eight people a wage. The business wasn't big enough. And then I kind of moved it from growing food to I figured out that I was I'd started managing trees. So I kind of moved that project off the farm into forestry management and working with trees. Then I started on the farm employing actual interns, people that were into it, into growing vegetables and stuff like that, and kind of split what I was doing. And then I was getting government assistance for the social role. And then because of the government assistance, I started coming under rules. Up until that point, I was just doing whatever I wanted because all they were was an employment. It wasn't even a contract. It was just standard employment. But it got formalized into two years, and I kind of had to write down what I wrote down is, doesn't match what we do. But I had to put something down on paper and then I had to get qualifications in counselling, which I have to top up, I think. I think I have to actually do another year of that now. The rules changed. And I have to do supervision then. So twice a year, I do a group therapy weekend with other counsellors, therapists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, people working in it, where we discuss any of the things that are going on that affect us any of the work that we're doing where it's affecting us personally yes we're not not dealing yeah yeah so that we don't have to deal with that in the work that we have somewhere else to deal with it i deal with all of my stuff in the work you know (laughs) i'm out with the madman fixing myself every day just like um (laughs) just as much as i'm helping them they're just and a lot of it they're just witnessing me do it and i'm just saying look it's possible Look, it is possible, you know, and then regularly demonstrating that I am still, you know, I am like them. You know, I'm just further down a different path. And yeah, yeah, I don't sit down and kind of ask them questions, you know. I use it's all physical, very physical. So it's cold water and lakes and rivers. It's cutting down trees with axes and running up hills. Because all of these guys, they're physically fit. They're all coming out of prison. They're all jacked. All, like, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. And trying to get them to eat right. I eat with them. We all eat together every day at lunchtime. I'm, and I teach them how to cook pot food, you know, sort of like stews and chili con carnies and stuff. Part of that is I'm making sure that they're eating a proper meal because, like, they don't know not to just eat McDonald's every day, like... That's a little bit disparaging. That's not 100% the way it is, but it's an indication. You know? And, yeah, yeah, so, we, like, through that work, I still really kind of, you know, I'm still an exploration of myself, you know? Of another kind of, it's not really a group. It's not a group in the same sense. It's people I push together, and they're young fathers. The youngest is 20, the oldest 26, you know? And that was me looking for something else to do. And it was like the feeling of trying to help other people was great, you know. It was like that's fucking amazing, you know. And whether or not it's like, does it matter whether I'm doing it because I feel fantastic if I help someone? And it's like when you see someone change, it's like Jesus. Christ. It's a drug in it. It is a drug. Oh, right. When you get through to someone, and um, why do you think I do so many <clears throat> pods? <laughs> 
fucking hell, man. You know? And it's like everybody else says you have to do it for the love of other people, right? Mm. And it's like I think that kind of stains it. It makes it hard. It takes something away. So why not allow yourself to enjoy? Why not go, I fucking did it. Yeah, look, you know, why not feel good about yourself if you've helped somebody, if you've done that, you know? It's like, I had a random encounter with a guy that just kind of dropped in that his mother had died the previous week. And it was just out of fucking nowhere, you know? Uh-huh. So I kind of just excused what was going on. I said, do you want to walk and talk rather than stand in here? We were in a park. And uh, I kind of just gave him 15 minutes and told him, like, that all sounds normal, do you know? It was like, you know, my father died, my mother's still alive, but my father died. And he says, you'll change how you feel about that for the rest of your life. The changes happen slowly, so you'll, you'll feel different next week, but then it'll be a month before you feel different again and six months before you feel different again after that. But you'll always feel something and you'll always feel different. And I says, it just starts out really intense because it's a big shock. You have to go around living like tomorrow is going to be the same as today because otherwise you can't get anything done. But it's not. like So when, when the reality meets the illusion like that, it's jarring. You know, and you have to rebuild useful illusions in your mind so that you can carry on again. And just speaking to somebody and saying, look, this is how, you know, what you're feeling is normal. It does feel like crap. Don't be rubbing somebody on the back and saying, ah, cheer up, or it'll be okay tomorrow. Just acknowledge that's, that feels like shit. And if you have no experience of it, you can just say, look, I've never experienced anything like that, but I'm looking at you, and it looks like it feels fucking awful. <laughs> you know? Like, I've always found that a better way to go about it. And then I walk away going, do you know what? I actually did something positive today. Because somebody reached out when they said something weird. And I didn't ignore it. And I recognized it for what it was. And I was brave enough to make a move. Do you know? A lot of these boys seem to be products of their environment, much like you perhaps were, Gar. How do you instill in them the skills and the power to take responsibility for their life so they don't end up becoming one permanently if that makes sense okay well the guys that i deal with are cherry picked okay right so the pathway is that in the prison the priest has recognized and instilled in them the foundations for the philosophy necessary to live in cooperation with other people and the probation officer would have, the priest would have given a report to the probation officer with anybody he has interacted with in any significant way when that person leaves prison. And if it is gang-related, violence-related, and the priest has got through to them, the probation officer goes, maybe he's right. I don't have patience for sex crimes, I don't have patience for anything to do with abusing children, so I don't get sent to any of those people, right? So it's very much a, a niche group of people that have the same problem that I have or that I was having. And the major problem of that is the instinct to solve everything with violence and the instinct to put myself at the top of the hierarchy of any room I end up in through the threat of beating in anybody that would disagree with me or go against what I had to say. Just that mentality. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a 100% success record. Some of them have gone straight back. I've ended up with the police all over the farm and, and then had to deal with the repercussions of that in the local village. And, the uh, gossip. You know, and kind of have to convince the main players that while there's a small bit of sacrifice to pay, that there's other people that aren't going to be hurt by these men that otherwise would be and nobody else is fucking doing anything and the fact that the first guy I helped was a success and he was a local lad gives me a bit of grace so because they could uh, visibly see it and because they know him or know of him and they can see how he's changed yeah yeah it's quite simple things an awful lot of it's just demonstration and they've got an awful lot of emotion that has to come out like we do pretty mental stuff and I let them scream and roar. And if we've got a fight, we'll fight. And 
you know. With you or with each other? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll fight with anyone if they want to fight. I'll have a go. If they want to set some rules. If they want to fight to the death, I'll try to talk them out of it. If they want to have a boxing <laughs> match, you know. I enjoy it. I grew up fighting with my brothers. It was great fun. And, you know, my wife doesn't like me having black eyes. And I try to protect my face a lot more now than I used to. But, um, like, yeah, because, like, if you're dealing with somebody who, like, you're starting from a position where they won't respect what you say unless you can beat them in a fight, then that's the shortest route. I could try to talk them out of that attitude or I could fight with them. But sometimes you know. it's fuck around and find out. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, look, I had a torn cruciate ligament at Christmas. And just before Christmas, I did six miles cross-country running four days ago. And I got it to heal right. I'm working 16-hour days at the moment. I'm only drinking water. I'm drinking some fermented cabbage or some shite that my wife made me that's supposed to help me at the moment. I eat to maintain my energy levels to work the way that I'm doing because I've got so much I want to do. And in the couple of hours I've got off here, I'm talking to you. And it's just life is for living. Other people watch TV and they get involved in sports teams. I don't do any of that. I get up every morning and I'm trying to make myself look better. All day, every day, in every way that I can. Some of the times it feels like a penance. Sometimes it feels like an adventure that I'm on. Sometimes it feels like a trap I've created for myself and I have to drag myself through it. But like, how you feel changes every day. All it takes is your wife to call you a dick and it'll change how you feel and how you perceive the rest of your life. (laughs) Well, I I was about to ask a different question, but just quickly there on the relationship you have with your wife, because... One very funny but very interesting that you spoke about on your interview with Benjamin Boyce is the relationship between your wife and you and the balance you have. And you said something along the lines of, you know, if someone ever called my wife submissive, she'd punch him in the face and I'd punch him afterwards or something something like that. But it's about you have the right balance, but it doesn't mean that she is oppressed or you are the oppressor. No, correct. It's just division of labour. So... And it's just putting the best foot forward. The example I give to Benjamin is one I use a lot, and it is I could bring you into my house and call into the house for sandwiches and sit you down, and you'll be brought a choice of food. You won't just be brought food, and you'll be asked what you want to drink, and she'll go off and sort that out, and she'll bring it to us, and then she'll leave us alone to get on with whatever. Right? But if you were to call that submissive, she'd smash the teacup into your ear. Right? <laughs> Uh, that's just not what's going on. She's not doing it because I've told her, and if she doesn't, I'm going to be mad or, you know, there's going to be problems, you know. It's like we're working together as a team towards this objective goal of a life that we have Mm. together. And we have much more focus on how our life is every day and making sure that next week is what it should be, more than we are like a focus on retirement or anything. You know, or what's coming after. And trying to enjoy every phase of life and what's going on and trying to be grateful and trying to be recognizing of what's possible today that won't be possible in two years because time moves so fast, you know, especially with children and family. And making sure that you're embracing what's available to you at the time and you know, not worrying too much about the future because plans are only to keep you moving forward. Plans don't work. You have to have a five-year plan, but nobody's ever executed a five-year plan and have it come out like it did on paper five years ago. That's not actually what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to just have a direction. The communists tried with the five-year plans. That's my GCSE history coming in handy, but I don't think even they've succeeded. No, it's not rational. There's too many outside influences. We're too emotional. Like The amount of times, like the amount of stuff we do, which is just a pure reaction to what's happening around us and only rationalize what we do if it ever comes up under question but because what we do is kind of trained into us how we react into the world is we train ourselves as adults but we get trained as children and how we react to the world is kind of how we have trained ourselves through fail and win and what works in the world and when asked to explain your behavior afterwards you can always explain it because it's easy to rationalize how you do why you do what you do after you've done it because you're always operating along you know you're reacting along your own lines of principle it's only if you feel bad or you feel guilty for something that you've done have you acted against what you want 
I mean, yes, people do actually plan things out, and yes, people do think or whatever. But most of most of your interaction with the rest of the world is is quite spontaneous. And if you want to change how you react to the rest of the world, you have to do an awful lot of thinking, because you have to train yourself to feel bad when you do it wrong, and then that feeling will actually train you. You'll automatically move away from how it feels. Along my journey to integrate myself, I really had to force myself to do loads of stuff that felt really bad. First time I presented myself at a market for anybody to come up and talk to me about my vegetables was just excruciating. And I had to get, get easier and easier the more I did it and the more I gained confidence in it. And it was like, but at the time that I was doing it, I was being drawn towards all these bad feelings. And I was telling myself that these bad feelings were because I had trained myself wrong. And that by pushing myself through the bad feelings and talking to myself in, in my head, and saying, no, 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 If as long as you hold the social contract, as long as you're polite, everybody else is polite. Just hold your frame, just be nice and smile at people. And people, and, and, it, and then it gets reinforced. And then the feelings start to change. And you know, then you buy into the illusion that people are being nice to you because they like you when they're not, they're just being polite. <laughs> it goes all the way off into the other end of delusion. Instead of going around assuming everybody thinks you're a scumbag, you go around assuming that everybody smiles at you because they think you're a nice person and they don't give a fuck. They just want to hold the social contract with you while you're mm. in their company. You know? Just coming back to the work you do with these young men, one mm -hmm. thing that I think either yourself or Benjamin said in your interview, I think in your first interview it might have been, is that learning how to be a man is how to gain control of your masculinity tap and know when to turn it on, know when to turn it off and mm -hmm. how to regulate your emotions. You think that's the biggest thing that you do in, in the work that you do? A hundred percent. Yeah. So you don't disempower people was one of the things he never pushed on to me to, to tidy up as an idea. I had said to him that you can't deny that they're powerful and try to take it away from them. So at no point was I ever feeling physically unsafe around other people so i always thought of myself as the biggest threat in the room everywhere i went and i never tried to change that feeling i just kept that there and it was like you don't have to use it if you use it it all goes wrong for you anyway <laughs> yes yeah, chaos you know? yeah 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 it doesn't work like that has a time and a place i don't want to be in the time and the place where that is useful you know because of all the other effects not because it isn't useful not because it isn't real, not because it doesn't work. Loads of people do their talking and everything like that. You just bop someone on the nose, they change really quick. Do you know? It's like Mike Tyson. Everyone's got a yeah, plan yeah, until they yeah, get punched yeah, in the yeah. nose or punched in the mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when people meet real intimidation and not sure, there's no mistake in it. There's no mistake in it. I don't pretend that that's not real. I don't pretend that they don't have it don't call it wrong i just call it unuseful you know it's working against you you know I don't ever feel that the other person deserves it you know get that idea out of your head and you can play around then if you put if you say that to somebody nobody that you ever beat up except for people that were trying to attack you ever actually deserved it and then listen to the listen to their defense of why some people deserved it and why some people don't and then use the philosophy of that you get what you put into life and that like you're creating your own circumstances. You're you're making your own life as you go. You know? Very Jordan Peterson, it, isn't it? Taking responsibility for yourself. I haven't listened to I haven't listened to all that much of his stuff. So Okay. That's his basic message, you know, personal him. responsibility, clean your room, all that sort of stuff. Well, I wouldn't even say personal it is personal responsibility. What I'm trying to do is manage this idea that, say, wider society would consider a lot of their behaviours as evil, let's say, right? The idea, the ideas of that, that we would be operating in, in a way where might is right, okay? And no fear of making victims out of people. If you stumbled across us, that was tough shit for you, you know? So this is considered not just antisocial, this is lock you up, you're so bad, right? And there'd be a moral judgment put on it and say, let's call it evil, right? I can't tell them that you're all bad demons, 
type thing, or your behavior is demonic, or that you're possessed and it's not you, you know, it is them. It was like, that just doesn't work. Who's going to listen to somebody that's telling them that, you know? And it was like, uh, I, a hypocrite. I did it too. <laughs> you know, how do you, that doesn't, how, there's just, I never once sat down and thought, oh my God, how am I going to get through to these people? And thought, okay, how am I going to convince them that they're evil? Because I didn't think of myself as evil. I just wanted something different out of life. And so that's what I was showing them. It was like, look, there's options here. You can never say a word ever again for the rest of your life. Nobody can make you talk. That's a choice. You can put on a backpack, busk, hitchhike, be a vagabond. You can, you can do that. You don't have to go back to that. I was like, you can move somewhere with a plan to do something. Like one guy went on and he got his driver's license. He really liked driving. He liked cars. He went on and I set him up when he left me to go do an apprenticeship as a mechanic. And now he's a mechanic in France. And he speaks French. Wow. With a French woman. With a French woman. Great. You know? Fantastic. Right. Is he rough? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's had more than one encounter with the police. Lots of disorderly conduct type stuff. He really struggled to control himself. But he got redirected. I mean, like, he had caused a lot of trouble. And he had hurt a lot of people. And he was going to do it again. And so any kind of a nudge in the right direction. I wasn't trying to cure people. <laughs> Do you know? There was no expectation over it. They came and worked with me. Most of them have got a big stroppy head in them and don't want to. And I have to kind of work through it. And it's all about creating chances. I kind of show them. And, you know, a lot of them kind of go, well, your life's boring. And I kind of go, oh, it's, you know, it's not really. It's all my choice, Do you know. Like, if you think what I'm doing is boring, then don't do what I'm doing. Do what you want to do. And go off and have whatever your life you want to have. But, mm. like, if you keep using violence to solve problems and you keep intimidating people rather than playing the system and taking your turn in the queue or whatever, the other four and a half million people around here are not going to let you play. <laughs> They're not going to share the ball with you because they're afraid of how you're going to carry on. And then, like, okay, so when somebody upsets them and they lose the rag, so this this is all what it's about, when you don't get your own way. I discourage them, like, I try to clean them up completely. And, and like, I kind of say, look, and I demonstrate to them, I'm only drinking water, I'm only eating my dinners, I have the odd supplement, right? And that's how I behave in the, in the summer because I've got so much to do. And then in the winter, I ease off. And I sleep a bit more. I'll drink and I'll smoke a bit of weed or whatever. And like I spend a lot more time with my family and I get involved in parties. And then I have a work mode and I go into my work mode. And so I show them that like you don't have to do one or, or the other. You can fade in and out and you can have phases in your life. And However things are now, they're not going to be the same in five years. And it's up to you which direction that takes. And then it's plus or minus luck, you know. You could do everything right and have such bad luck, you just keep going backwards and backwards and backwards. And your adventure in life is being this kind of immovable wall that just will not give up, no matter how bad luck you get, in the hopes that one day your luck will break and that your triumph in life will be to have pushed yourself through to the point where your luck broke. It's like, that's some people's destiny. Other people, there was a kid in a city near me, got struck by lightning. It wasn't even fucking raining on his bike. What? Right? Yeah. Struck by lightning. Right? Not even raining. Cloudy, but out of nowhere. Boom. That was his fate. That's what he got. Wow. You know? That's some serious bad luck. Yeah. There is people that have awful bad luck. Sure, you've had a bit of bad luck with your injury. That's an awful one. I'm familiar with it. (laughs) (laughs) You know? You know, whatever plans you had for, um, I'm sure you're not too bad now, but last week. Uh, oh, yeah, it was one of the worst weeks of my life. Right. So, whatever you thought at Christmas about July, it's bullshit, wasn't it? Of course. Right. So, you can't actually predict that far apart. But we could make an arrangement to meet and talk, and we could jiggle it as we went along, and we could kind of make it happen. So, it's not like planning is pointless, but the plan is only to put yourself into the future. So there's a big looseness about what I do with the guys, do you know? Don't push them in any direction. If all they get is fed and some money, 
and something on their CV and they get to hang out with me and the rest of them for two years instead of whatever else they'd be doing. That's fine. I don't owe anybody anything. I'm mostly doing this so that I feel like I'm contributing. And as I said, some days it feels like a penance. I've hurt plenty of people. I've hurt plenty of people and I know I was enjoying myself while I was doing it. That's that's a really bad feeling, man. That's quite motivating to get out there and try to do something good to make up for it without ever knowing if that's like a balance or if anybody's keeping count. All I know is that I feel better if I try to do something about it. I've got one more question left before we wrap up and we've gone on a very unconventional conversation, which I've actually enjoyed because it's very unformulaic to what I normally do, Gar. So as a final question, given all the work that you've done, obviously you love a tweet. I really enjoy your tweets because they're always in these threads and they're always very high quality musings and sometimes they're unconventional, a bit spicy and sometimes they're pretty middle of the road. I like winding people up. You do like winding people up, which I also do enjoy. If there was one message that you would want to give to my male listeners who might be struggling with their mental health, who might be struggling with purpose or lacking direction or you know, could end up, God forbid, but maybe even being one of the boys who end up getting sent to you. What would you say from your experience? Um, these are so specific, right? It's mm-hmm. so hard to say anything general, you know? Yes. And like, I could spend, say, four weekends in a row on a Zoom call or whatever with you for two hours each time. So eight hours asking you questions and listening. And unless I actually got to sit down, I prefer it in person, but unless I got to actually speak to the other people that you talk to, talking about when you're describing your life, I don't know anything about you. What I know is what you want me to know. Yeah, fair enough. So, right, in order for me to actually say anything that would benefit anybody, I'd have to get to know them enough to call them out on their bullshit. And so, like, what I would advocate is you've got to open yourself to other men, right? And develop friendships and closenesses and put time and energy into people and accept that everybody's a dick, you know? (laughs) There's one message of this podcast, Gar. (laughs) Yeah, everybody's got it in them to be really horrible to others. And everybody's got it in them to jump in the river and save the baby when the time comes. And... Bad guys and good guys doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. This is something that's within us. It's it's all within us, individually. You know, I mean, trying to put it into an external world and think of yourself as the good guy and somebody else or something else as the bad guy. If you're listening to any philosophy or you're reading any books, you're not getting it if you think that way, right? Because it's not about the outside world. It's about how you decide for yourself. And you have to find a hook. I had to turn everything into selfish altruism and convince myself that this was all for my own benefit. This is all around what I want. I don't want to live like that. I do want to live like that. And so this is how I'm going to get there. What I don't want to do, what my push was, and then what I do want to do, what my pull was. So young people that are going on that way, it was like you will get back from society times 10 what you put in especially if it's negative. If you go around being hurting people, right, like love-based relationships and family and stuff, hurt is part of growing together, right? Strangers and acquaintances, right, if you hurt them, they're going to hurt you back, you know, one way or another. And if you misbehave with institutions and you know, if you misbehave where people have numbers, you know, a department store, whatever, they're going to push back. So understand what the contract is. Understand, like, if I behave this way, then this is what I should be able to expect from other people. Mm. And then that's the contract. And then if other people don't uphold that contract, then nor do you. And you have to kind of navigate your way out of that, you know. Like nihilism and pointlessness, it's like they're kind of going, there is no future. And it was like, of course there's no future. You know, There is no future. There is no past. You and me aren't measuring the climate. We're reading what's on Twitter or on Facebook too. You still have to fucking do something tomorrow. You're going to run out of food. What are you going to do? Starve six months before the apocalypse. You know? 
<laughs> like tomorrow's coming, time is ticking away. Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. I'm sorry. It's this romanticized idea of the level of bonding you can have with other people takes so much work. The Disney movie doesn't show you getting past hurting each other. And that goes with friendships too. And, and you know, your relationships with your siblings. And like, there's some really harsh realities for men that you have to understand. Right? Half of men don't get to reproduce. And I understand I'm saying that from a position of having five children. Right? And it's a really harsh reality, but half of men don't get to have kids. So don't set yourself up where you consider success in life reproducing. Right? Don't set yourself up for that fail. Don't set yourself up to hit 45 and 50 and feel like you've failed because you haven't had children. You have to accept half of men don't. Right? You've got to recognise reality for what it is. I see a lot and I hear a lot and I hear it in both groups that I deal with, the young fathers and the prisoners. There's, there's this expectation of other women to treat you the way that your mother treated you. Now, you only get one mum. Every other woman <laughs> is going to treat you however the fuck she wants to treat you. And if you don't play ball with that, the other men will intervene. Because the men that will go on to reproduce will not have you interfering with that project. Because to them, that's it. That's everything. That becomes the world. Right? So you should understand your sex drive is in your, your impulse to try to reproduce. Right? Take it off sex. Take it off women. Understand it in terms of it being 4.5 billion years of evolution. Genetically programmed you to try to reproduce. The trick is not to need to reproduce to consider yourself a success in life and to pursue the other avenues of life and reproduce if you can. (laughs) I went off on my own path, did my own thing, and I attracted a woman that was attracted to that mission. She thought that looked good. My life, might say my wife's life, would be a torture for other women. It's just what she wanted. And people feel people feel bad in, in loneliness. And it's like, that's an impulse, loneliness. That's supposed to compel you to go spend time with people. Listen to it. It's not any more complicated than that. What a great way to end. Garlock, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you very much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Cool. Peace out. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Gar for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links to where you can follow Gar on social media in the show notes. And I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show. All of those links are on our link tree. That's www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.